Welcome to Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. Season four is all about recognizing people who help animals and help the people who help animals. Today's interview is with Michael Schneider of Pilots to the Rescue, a fantastic nonprofit organization that has helped hundreds of dogs on their journey from hell to home. Michael's story on how and why he started his organization is unique, as are the challenges of flying dogs versus flying humans. The snippet tip is on rising above operant conditioning. Is there life after positive and negative reinforcements? You bet there is. I'm the kind of girl can roll like a guy, but I really don't know. If you're ready for the ride, I'm Hello, I'm Billy Groom your host and successful dogologist for three decades. And I have with me again today, my co-host, David L. Halsell. Hey, David. Hi, Billy. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good, good. Today, we have with us Michael from Pilots to the Rescue. And hey, Michael, how's it going? Hi, Michael. Hey. Hi, guys. It's going great. Thanks for doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks for taking your time to... uh, to join us, I know it's uh, busy out there in the saving the the dog and human world. Um, you do humans and uh, you you help humans and dogs, right? That's right. Yeah, we make the best use of the plane. It is owned and operated by the charity, um, so we help out with any type of public benefit flying that we can. Uh, primarily, it is dogs, but we we do other animals and we also do people and and uh, you know. Oh, to be non-perishable food, PPE, all kinds of stuff. Oh. And when when did you start Pilots to the Rescue? Back in uh, 2015. So we're okay. going on five years. Okay. And why did you start it? I, I combined my love of aviation and rescuing animals. That's the, the primary reason. Well, if, it, if we go way back, I did a program called Landmark, and uh, they have this this thing called the big game. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, they give you 48 hours to accomplish something you've always wanted to, but mm. you make it, you make every excuse in the book for not doing it. So <laughs> typical excuses could be like, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the energy. So it's, it's a, it's a transformation type, um, you know, honest look at yourself. And in the advanced course, they, they just call you out on your your BS and say, you know, you, you have to pick an unreasonable goal and you have to do it in 48 hours. So um, <laughs> I was already I was already a pilot at that point, and uh, I was I did some missions with another uh, similar organization, and I, I wanted to create my own mousetrap. You know, I wanted to create my own organization. So within 48 hours, I raised over ten thousand dollars, and the rest was history. Well, oh my God! Wow, good for you. Really impressive. Wow, thank you. You're a popular, well-liked guy. If you can do that, that's awesome. Well, I think it's more about you know not making excuses and and being in action. If you put all those excuses aside, you're making lots of room to accomplish whatever mission you set your mind to. Yes. Yes. Well put. Well put. Um, where are the animals and the humans from? All over the place. Yeah, like or? how do you get them, or how do you learn about them? Yeah, so we primarily operate along the eastern seaboard of the United States. None of these planes, both from the volunteers and the charities plane, are they don't necessarily have the range or the speed that you'd have you would need to do, uh, you know, across the country rescue. So uh, being here in the Northeast, we can easily reach 
Uh, I keep the plane in New Jersey, for example, we can reach North Carolina in, in, in two hours. Mm. And on the east, eastern side of the United States, the states that generally have the worst problems with overcrowded shelters is the Carolinas, a um, little bit of Virginia, uh, Georgia, and Florida. But Florida is, is a little out of reach for missions. Uh-huh. Um, and as far as the people, the people, again, it's going to be mostly here in the Northeast unless we're using volunteer pilots, which we do. We use volunteer pilots across the country to help us out. But uh, as far as where we make the most impact um, with the animals would be the Eastern Seaboard and with the people would be most likely the Northeast. Hmm. So how many animals have you transported or I guess humans would be included in that in the, I guess, five years? Do you know? Do you have a number? Yeah. So in the beginning, it was slow going because we had I had to rent planes and these are very small planes. Most of the volunteer pilots are renting planes or part of a flying Mm. club. And typically they're four seater planes. Um, That has to do with insurance more than anything, because the more seats or souls that you have in the plane, the more the insurance companies will charge you. So generally they're four place or four seater aircraft that I had access to. And there's really not a whole lot of room to transport more than a few animals at a time. So in the beginning, it was slow going. Uh, once we purchased our first plane uh, a couple of years ago, we we grew exponentially in terms of the amount that we've saved. I think today we're, we're well into the hundreds, probably 500 plus, I lost track um, in terms of animals that we've saved. Yeah. Um, and then we just put a, a purchase order in for a new plane and we hope to get in the next 30 days. And I also, ha- I also have permission from the wife, which is really important, uh, mm-hmm. that I, I could start doing missions on a weekly basis. Oh, um, oh that's, that's great. great. Yeah. And on average, we are rescuing 10 animals at a time. So that would be, oh. we, we should be able to hit our goal of 500 animals and people in the next year. That's great. So that's the new great. plane that you purchased, is it bigger than a four-seater? Yes. Uh, well, the last plane we had was a six-seater okay. and the, the seats come out. That's the important part. Right. Um, it, it's like the size of a station wagon. That's a good oh. comparison. And the new plane we purchased is very similar to the the last one we have. It just it's turbocharged and it has oxygen and it's you know it's just a little oxygen's bit more mo- modern. Yeah. Yeah. Oxygen's good for the pilots and the passengers, but you can't put oxygen on the animals, and the animals become hypoxic. They basically will pass out sooner than we will. So. It's great for on the way down to North Carolina, for example, because we can go high and go on oxygen. But coming back, when we, got, when we have the doggies, we generally can't go above 10,000 feet, um, depending on the condition of the animal, just because you don't want your animals passing out on you. No, that's not really the goal. Yeah. That's no. interesting. That is yeah. an interesting challenge, isn't it? it for, you know, for people that don't under, understand that, really, like myself, because I don't really know anything about flying, except that it gets me from A to B. That's an, an interesting thing to think about when you're switching from your passengers being humans to being animals. Or right. Yeah. And most people are used to going in commercial planes, which are pressurized. But a lot of right. these, a lot of these planes are, you know, single engine propeller plane. They're not pressurized, so the only way you can go higher than twelve thousand five hundred feet legally is to have oxygen on board. So it takes you longer if you can't fly as high in altitude, or it it could it could um, certainly with a turbocharger. So a turbocharger, you don't really get the benefits at the lower altitudes. Mm. Um, oh. You get it. At, you get it when when you can't make what's called manifold pressure. You, as you go up higher, there's less oxygen. So the engine 
can't make as much power. The turbocharger gives it more power and it, it acts as if it's closer to uh, sea level pressure. So as you go higher, the turbocharge benefits you. It's not so much about going faster, it's make, it, it make, gives you more power to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you can go higher, you can avoid a lot of weather. The air is typically less turbulent mm-hmm. and there's less traffic. Um, so you can get above icing, convective weather, like uh, um, lightning, thunderstorms. Mm. Um, and, and as I said, less less uh, turbulence. And you can take advantage of the favorable winds. That's where you really get the, the speed uh-huh. benefit is when you get those big tailwinds. Wow. Interesting. So, interesting. Yeah. Rise above it all. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah that's it. Rise above. Rise above. Yeah. And so, what, uh, what's your most memorable transport? I say, I mean, in the as far as dogs are concerned, it's any of the animals um, that are uh, have some kind of disability or have been abused, mm-hmm. because it not only is it so re- rewarding knowing that I transported an animal and they got to live another day and eventually be adopted, but th- those animals, whether they're senior dogs or um, I, the the ones that are. I'm disabled. The ones that come to mind are I've transported a dog with cerebral palsy, transported a dog with one eye. I transported a dog that was blind. Mm. All three, all three of those dogs that I mentioned were, were going to going to be euthanized because of overcrowded conditions because they couldn't get adopted because of their disability. But they're the sweetest, most mm. approachable mm-hmm. animals you've ever seen. And I, I do believe that these animals know they're being rescued. They when they get on the plane, they're excited to get out of their conditions that are generally not favorable at all. I mean, these municipally run shelters, it's unfortunate. I mean, because the people that work there, they people always point fingers at them and say, how dare you euthanize an animal? They're just, unfortunately, they're just doing their job. They have to make room for the animals that are coming in. Um, yeah. But it really breaks your heart to see an animal that's been abused. And it's it's way more rewarding uh, to, to be able to transport those animals. Um, yeah, because and when they, you normally they wouldn't. Them, it, when you land, do they have a home that they're going to, or a foster home, or where are you taking them to, or a shelter? Every that mission that, yeah. So we generally don't get involved in in the origin and the destination, but of course, the one thing that is really important, since we're a five hundred one c three public benefit organization, and all our uh, funds that are donated go to the mission, is that we have to be transporting animals that are, are at risk for, for being euthanized. Uh, we don't get in the business, we're not in the business of transporting people's pets. Um, we're certainly not in the business of transporting an animal halfway across the country just because someone wants to adopt them. Um, there are, there, we are always telling uh, people that call about you know transporting an animal they want to adopt. We're generally referring them to their local rescue organizations. Mm-hmm. It's way more efficient, and there are certainly going to be animals uh, that are suitable to adopt near them. Um, so, after I explained all that, I forgot your question. No, that's okay. You were right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when they when you take when you bring the animals from their shit situation, and mm-hmm. you land your your plane, where do they go from there? Oh yeah, so they're going to um, shelters. Uh, or animal, other animal rescue organizations that promise not not to euthanize them. Okay. Uh, they right. they have to have a space. They have to agree to get them adopted out. Um, sometimes we work with fosters, okay. but um, 
obviously we're, we don't want to transport an animal from one bad situation to another. Right. So right. Um, the, a lot of the destination shelters and fosters that reach out to us, they're looking for us as a way to source um, more animals to be adopted. And they generally pull from overcrowded shelters in the South. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And we do a really good job up here in the Northeast at adopting animals out. The further north you go, the further northeast you go, I should say, I, I think um, Vermont is a, a, they're not even allowed to by law to euthanize an animal. I know that Boston, for example, the fourth largest city um, in the Northeast, um, they had agreed that you can no longer buy a, a dog in a pet store. It can only be a, a rescue. Um, so there's a lot of great things happening up here in the Northeast um, that, that I hope, hope some of the other states follow suit. Um, from what I understand, the worst states are California, Texas, the Carolinas, and Florida. Um, I think those states in particular have horrific problems when it comes to euthanizing animals. Yeah, but they do. They this do. pandemic has improved the stacks big time. Um, a lot of shelters have been cleared out yes. uh, because everybody's been home and they want, they want a furry friend. Yeah. So that's yeah, a good thing. There's been some positives for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, can, how can listeners help? Um, by donating money or time or what can yes they sure uh, the number one is 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 uh, donating money of course um, it's it's very expensive to own and operate an aircraft and the organization does support that yeah. um, you know besides purchasing an aircraft that costs quarter million dollars it's annual maintenance and insurance and hangar is you know very expensive um, any maintenance issues that we have, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, so that's, that's, that's the best, best way people can help out. Yeah. Uh, we, we do have an outpouring of volunteers um, willing to help us, and that's always a good thing. And we, um, you can go on the website and you can sign up to do, to, and we'll reach out to you when we have an opportunity. Um, and so if you, people are, are pilots, if they have their own private plane with that, I don't know how many listeners do. I don't know the, the stats on that. Yeah. That'd be great. If I had a plane, I'd be helping you out. Can is can they also? Yeah, sure, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if, if you know a pilot um, or you know of someone who has access to an aircraft, um, they certainly could sign up. But also ground transport is huge in what we do. Uh, so volunteer drivers. Uh, by the way, rescuing animals with with uh, on the ground is way more efficient than in an airplane. Um, so, you know, we we generally get involved in mission critical stuff, uh, like dogs that could not in, endure that type of drive, or even humans for that matter, with the um, non-ambulatory flights that we do. Uh, so, our mission critical stuff is is great, but it's not nearly as efficient as driving. So. And, and those are the real heroes, if you ask me, the people that are willing to endure these 10 plus hour drives, and, you know, in their SUVs and their station wagons, they're the real heroes. I mean, I, I, I can fly a plane, but I don't know if I could drive 10 hours. Yeah, um, yeah I'm yeah. the same. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that's good of you to say that. Actually, one of our previous episodes was with uh, furry hobos and highway heroes, and that's a trucking company, and they were connected with uh, Canadian Trucking Magazine and they that was a that was a great episode they do a lot of really great work they do yeah, all, all those ground people. transport people and it's you know we're flying fast but at a much at a higher cost 
of course. Um, so, and, and uh, fairly, you know, it's not a sizable cabin. It's certainly not like a tractor trailer or a railroad car or whatever yeah. else people can contribute. Yeah. So. Well, they're doing more, you know, one dog or two at a at a time, right up in the in the front trucking part with them. So. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, not all not I all the shelters a can. Job. Like thank doing, you. That's a lot of animals that you're doing, and you can put. That's a fair number you can put in that plane. I think it's. Yeah, I think it's it's just an alternative and it's a great one and not everyone can do it because, you know, you've I'm sure it's uh, pricey and um, time consuming to to get that uh, to put it all together to get the air. Yeah. And even to get your license to do that. And no, I think it's great because any alternative is mm -hmm. super helpful. And like you said, you really know your area really well and you know what the needs are and you provide that specific um you know where some of their, their rescue organizations are more taking the dogs in and getting them homed and and whatever health they need but they they still need to get to them so that's that's great thank you pleasure to do it honestly yeah. it's uh i get to fly this kick-ass plane that i normally couldn't afford <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, i get there's lots of pluses well, like that yeah too. and you right. should have a bonus that's yeah, great yeah absolutely Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And I think this brings us to our tail end question. Michael, what have you learned from animals or an animal that has been inspirational or life changing? What I've learned from animals and that's inspirational and life changing is the unconditional love that these animals give humans, even after they've been abused or neglected or left for dead. Um, yeah. we would, we would all be better if we were more like these dogs and cats. Um, you know, they, it doesn't matter how they're treated. They all can be nursed back and they'll just, their love is exponential and the people that they touch, it, it, it just goes without saying it's, it, they're always there for you. And, um, I'm awesome. reminded of, I'm reminded of that when I come in contact with people that are less fortunate. Um, in doing this work, I just want to put a challenge out to the listeners, and I'm sure they already realize this. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are already volunteering. But for those that are thinking about it or have never done it before, giving back, and I'm not I'm not talking about just writing a check, which is important, but actually physically doing something to help less fortunate animals or people, it, the rewards are exponential. They come back to you 10 times over. And there are just so many things in my life that I'm fortunate. I don't attribute that to luck. I attribute that to me giving back. And the more that I give back, the more that I receive. Um, and if people don't believe me, just try it and see what happens. What do you have yeah. to lose? Yeah. Well put. Well put. Yeah. And you could gain a whole lot, even what you don't expect to gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. what happens. You, you, you donate your time, you give back to the less fortunate. And then all of a sudden these things start to, come into your space and you have no explanation for it for it yeah, it just manifests it's wonderful good for you well yeah. thank you so much and um best of luck with all your future goals with uh uh pilots to the rescue and thanks for everything that you do for them it's yes, really great thank you yeah thanks my so pleasure thank okay. you take care michael oh, 
I'm just loving the music clips by Danielle Bourgeau. She rocks it, and I'm elated to have her music on this podcast. She won the Discovery Award at the 2017 CCMAs, and she's a huge dog lover, having volunteered for Pities in Pink in Nashville during the eight years she was there. That chat with Michael was so interesting. What a great vision he has, and we have no doubt that Pilots to the Rescue will continue to soar. And in keeping with the puns, this snippet tip is on rising above operant conditioning. So there's a lot of buzz in the dog behavioral world right now about a trending method called balanced training. I recently changed out the first episode of season three, which was a recap of season one and replaced it with an episode on balanced training. Season three is all about trending methods. So if you do not know what it is, I suggest checking it out. But in a nutshell, positive reinforcement trainers and balanced trainers both apply positive reinforcements to encourage wanted behavior. How they do this varies. Some trainers are simply better than others and the type of positive reinforcements vary. So the success rate also varies. Balanced trainers also apply the other half of operant conditioning. So operant conditioning uh, is a scientifically proven method that uses positive and negative reinforcements to encourage and discourage uh, wanted and unwanted behaviors. These are grounded in reactive measures. And because balanced trainers also use negative reaction, there is a lot of controversy between these trainers what is acceptable negative reinforcement, and if it's acceptable at all. So the tricky part is that operant conditioning consists of both sides. So essentially, there needs to be both positive and negative reinforcement to be successful. Although with puppies, uh, often you can just use positive reinforcement training, and with some dogs as well. And when it is effective, those people don't hire me, which is great. But because the term negative reinforcement is not a pretty term for the dog training world, Balanced training uses terms and techniques called positive correction and positive punishment to avoid using the word negative. It is still negative reaction to discourage unwanted behavior. And I'm not opposed to this, nor am I opposed to applying reactions that discourage unwanted behavior if it is correlative to the issue, calm, clear, and non-physical, and makes sense to the dog. So that's really what your positive correction and positive punishment are doing. So really, applying positive and negative reinforcements is not exactly groundbreaking. In fact, it's human nature. Positive correction and positive punishment, in a nutshell, would be something like removing a treat or taking a dog farther away from a desired reward, such as playing with a dog, when the behavior the dog is doing is unwanted. So again, it's not exactly breakthrough. In fact, it's human nature. And although it is much better than direct negative reinforcements, it can still be limiting. As the balanced training craze has erupted, trainers are discussing, debating, and arguing terminology and the way in which the positive and negative reinforcements should be applied. Yes, they are even arguing over the positive. I recently read a post where a woman was dead determined that using praise instead of treats was the way to go. And another where a man insisted bacon was a higher value reward than treats. Treats, sorry. Trainers who are adamant about remaining positive reinforcement trainers suggest higher value treats or not feeding your dog before a training ses session to encourage them to be more food motivated. Really, people, where is the common sense in this? Why are these trainers struggling to find ways to get dogs to want a treat or food? Because they are not seeing the forest for the trees. Stop the crazy train. What they are not recognizing is that operant conditioning 
using positive and negative reinforcements, however you want to turn them or however they are applied, are limiting and often ineffective with dogs over six months. As soon as you find yourself scrambling to discover a higher value reward because your dog is flipping you the bird or stressing out over having to apply a reaction to unwanted behavior that you're uncomfortable with because your dog just simply doesn't give a shit when you, for instance, remove the bacon, you need to rise above operant conditioning. It is time to climb out of the cesspool of debating cheese versus bacon. Clicker versus the word yes, removing treats or removing the dog or telling your guests to ignore or kneeing your dog or frantically trying to give treats like a Pez dispenser or using a spray bottle or an e-collar. And even if you are using treats and your timing is, is right and you're, you're a really good trainer, these are all reactive techniques, which is what operant conditioning is grounded in. And that is why it is often limiting, ineffective or counterproductive even when applied correctly and without harsh or aversive reactions. Operant conditioning is scientifically proven and is great, especially for puppies, but it is reactive in nature and assumes dogs want to learn expected behavior and that you are starting with a clean slate. Upward dogology is grounded in cognitive behavioral therapy. It is proactive in nature and does not focus on teaching right from wrong, but instead provides dogs with skills to change his or her perception of the need to do that behavior to achieve the goal. It addresses the reason for the behavior and proactively prevents unwanted behavior. The platform exercises do not rely on contrived rewards such as treats or pats or clickers. The rewards we use make sense to the dog. They are not forced or contrived. The upper dogology formula is quite simple and proven effective. Check out season one for more info. This podcast is not intended to be a training manual, but it is loaded with information that allows you to retrain your brain and change the way you view working with dogs over six months of age. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. I really appreciate your support, as do the guests who really need the recognition. If you enjoy these episodes, please leave a rating or review. Share them. Tell your friends and family about them. If you have any questions, you can email me at billy at upperdogology.com. Please follow me on Instagram, Upward Dogology, and Facebook, Upward Dogology. In the show notes, you can find links to the guests and to Danielle. Please support them as well. For more information on Upward Dogology and as well, links to my book. Uh, well, that's in the show notes, but also on my website, www.upwarddogology.com. Enjoy your learning journey. <laughs>